It's Tuesday, September 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The first debate between President Trump and Joe Biden goes down tonight. It's sure to be an unpredictable affair that so far has been a game of expectations. Trump has portrayed Biden as sleepy and senile, while still saying he has a ton of experience in the debate arena. Biden, on the other hand, has to keep his gaffes at a minimum. Tyler Pager, national political reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for a presidential debate preview. Next, new documents obtained by Stat News show just how involved the military is in Operation Warp Speed, the effort to fast-track a COVID-19 vaccine and therapeutics. The $10 billion initiative is going to pose a huge logistical undertaking once a vaccine is approved, and that is one of the benefits of having so many in the military involved. They are good at complex logistical issues. Nicholas Florco, Washington correspondent at Stat News, joins us for more. Finally, the CDC, one of the most admired public health agencies in the country, has seen its credibility erode over the course of the pandemic. There were some stumbles early on in the rollout of test kits to the changing guidance on aerosols and how the coronavirus spreads. The agency has also had to deal with political interference. Lena Sun, health reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how 2020 has been a disaster for the CDC. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We had a little debate prep before we came here. I think this whole thing, though, is debate prep. You know, what I do is debate prep every day. I'm taking questions from you people all the time. Joining us now is Tyler Pager, national political reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to do a little preview of the upcoming debate between President Trump and Joe Biden. These things usually end up being pretty fun for people that are into politics and whatnot. But this one is going to be pretty unpredictable just because of the nature of President Trump himself. So, Tyler, what are we expecting in this debate? I mean, it's it's literally a game of expectations. And we've been seeing President Trump kind of downplay the expectations for Joe Biden, up the expectations for him, uh, you know, and the same for Joe Biden. You know, he's got to field a lot of things thrown at him throughout the debate. So, So what are we looking for? It's very unpredictable, and and that's kind of Trump's style. We've seen it for his entire presidency, and even during his campaign, is you never really know what to expect from him. And I think that element of surprise often suits him well in debates. And so I just think we don't know. And I think your point about expectations is the right one. Trump has been giving mixed messages. At certain points, he portrays Joe Biden as senile and misunderstanding what's going on. And at other times, some of his allies are saying, oh, no, Joe Biden's a really good debater. He's going to come out and have a really strong performance. And so we're getting these mixed messages. And I think it's because Trump himself, it's been an attack to call Joe Biden Sleepy Joe for months now, but his allies are worried that if Biden comes out and delivers a strong performance, that kind of contradicts what the president has been saying for more than a year. Um, So I think the expectations are a little bit unclear for Joe Biden. And the same for Trump. I mean, Trump is a good debater because debates reward kind of those one-line zinger type of opportunities. And there's not a whole lot of fact-checking. You know, the president is known to not always speak the truth. And so when there is just him and and Joe Biden on stage, the fact-checking responsibility falls on Joe Biden. And it's unclear that he wants to play that role of just continually pointing out where the president is not telling the truth. Or it could fall on to the moderator, Chris Wallace. How much of on-the-fly fact-checking will he be doing or trying just to correct the record or something like that, steer them the right way? Who knows what kind of role he'll play during the debate? But going back to Joe Biden a little bit, for him, it seems that he's got to avoid making any big gaffes at all costs, something that would play into 
what President Trump has been pinning him as. And we've seen some uneven debate performances from Joe Biden. So that is a concern for him and his aides. So first on the Chris Wallace point, I think Democrats are hoping he plays that fact-checking role. Chris Wallace has signaled that he doesn't plan to. We'll see if he sticks by that or the misinformation is just overwhelming that he feels the need to point out things here or there. And with Joe Biden, the expectations are high for him in terms of not making those gaffes or making some of those mistakes that we've seen. When you look back at the Democratic primary, Joe Biden was often under attack because he was the front runner, and he delivered solid performances. He had some strong points. He had some weaknesses, notably when his now running mate Kamala Harris eviscerated him over his past positions on busing. But I think the biggest thing for Joe Biden is whether or not he's able to keep his composure. Trump is telegraphing and likely to go after his family, particularly his son Hunter. When Joe Biden gets attacked on his record or his family, he often gets very defensive. And sometimes you see those gaffes come out. And so I think his aides and advisors are trying to prep with him to be able to handle that incoming and pivot away from it instead of letting it overwhelm him. President Trump does have some momentum coming into this debate with his Supreme Court nomination. By all accounts, it looks like Judge Amy Coney Barrett is going to get confirmed once the process gets started. It's going to happen in record fashion, really. So he has kind of this little bit of momentum. It must figure well for him and and his ego and his confidence. So that's going to be tough for Joe Biden to kind of play around because the president, if he's feeling it, he's going to do a good job. A few things on that. One, most voters are decided. There's a very small slice of the electorate that has not made up their minds. And polling shows debates don't actually move the needle that much. Biden allies point to Joe Biden's somewhat uneven performances in the primary and say, look, he still won. And so while I think there's a bar that people want Joe Biden to clear in terms of showing stability and and not making some of those mistakes that you alluded to, the bar is actually not that high. At the same time, Trump is dealing with a multitude of crises, just as this weekend, the New York Times reporting he only paid $750 in taxes. That's something that's sure to get a lot of attention at the debate and something Joe Biden is going to look to capitalize on. And at the same time, the coronavirus pandemic. And Joe Biden is, as he's been doing for weeks and months, going to pin that on Donald Trump and his, what he says, failed response to this virus. So yes, Trump definitely has some momentum from a Supreme Court pick that's going to energize the evangelical base and the conservative base. But when he tries to pivot to making up ground that he's lost with independence, I think that's the, the pandemic and his response to the attacks that come from Joe Biden are where I'd be watching for what his messaging is. Tyler Pager, national political reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. The chart we obtained lists roughly 60 officials from the military and the Department of Defense writ large. And it only contains less than 30 people who actually have a background in healthcare, many of whom work at the Department of Health and Human Services. Joining us now is Nicholas Florco, Washington correspondent at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Nicholas. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about Operation Warp Speed. This is obviously the effort by the government to develop a COVID-19 vaccine and other therapeutics at record speed, at this warp speed. We're hearing that there could be some good news about vaccines anytime now, although most experts think that a vaccine probably won't be widely distributed until the middle of next year, but all of that is still in development. But there at Stat News, you guys developed an organizational chart about the leadership of Operation Warp Speed, and there's a lot of military personnel involved in that. It's not necessarily a bad thing. They are very good at logistics, and that's where it seems to be their focus is going to be at. But Nicholas, tell us what you're finding out about the leadership in Operation Warp Speed. 
So STAT obtained this internal organizational chart for Operation Warp Speed, which to remind folks is its initiative to create and develop and distribute 300 million doses of a coronavirus vaccine by January. As you mentioned, the biggest takeaway here is really how intimately tied the military is to this effort, much more so actually than previously disclosed. So the chart we obtained lists roughly 60 officials from the military and the Department of Defense writ large. And it only contains less than 30 people who actually have a background in healthcare, many of whom work at the Department of Health and Human Services. So this is really notable because it's a serious departure from past precedent. You know, in the H1N1 pandemic of 2009, for example, the CDC led the effort to distribute vaccines and the military was virtually absent from the whole initiative. So this is a really striking difference from how we've handled these sorts of things in the past. This is a $10 billion initiative, and we all know how important this is. We're waiting for this vaccine so that hopefully we can start returning back to normal. But as you mentioned, distribution of vaccines and things like that have been done in the past by the CDC. But this is a huge undertaking. We have a lot of different companies that the government is working with and funding, you know, the potential for hundreds of thousands, millions of vaccines to be distributed. So this is where the expertise of the military actually comes into play and, and is a benefit. So folks that are defending this initiative and the way it's structured make a really strong argument for the military being involved. So they note, for example, when we take H1N1, that was a much smaller pandemic. And they, frankly, the issues that we're dealing with now, the CDC has never been used to. So, for example, we're having the military flying in materials from around the world to start manufacturing these vaccines before they're ever approved. We have the military quite literally guarding trucks full of vaccines to ensure that there aren't attacks from state actors here. So there's clearly issues here that the military has a lot of expertise in dealing with that the CDC, quite frankly, doesn't. And that's why defenders of the system say we need to bring in the military here. This has never been done before. We need their expertise. Who are we looking at as the top leaders for Operation Warp Speed? So the two folks that people might be familiar with are Monsef Slawi. He is the chief advisor here. He's a vaccine expert. He used to be a GlaxoSmithKline, which is one of the largest vaccine makers. And he is sort of the civilian science lead on this whole project. And then the CEO is a four-star army general by the name of Gustav Perna. And he is really sort of the Army's top logistics guy. He previously ran Army Material Command, which sort of deals with all of the logistics related to the military. You know, he is actually in the Army's Logistics Hall of Fame. He did a lot of work on the surge in Afghanistan in 2009. He's sort of the guy who knows how to get all the pieces of the military working together. So those two are the top leaders. And those are the folks that folks might be familiar with. They were the ones that were with the president during the rollout of this whole initiative. But we and our story actually go much deeper than that. So um, just to highlight one person that I find really fascinating is a man named Matt Hepburn. He's an army doctor. He is actually coordinating the vaccine development portion of Operation Warp Speed. And prior to doing that, he actually spent six years at DARPA, which is this military-aligned organization that works on high-tech projects. They actually played a role in creating the internet. And Matt has actually made a point throughout his career of talking about how science can prevent pandemics from ever occurring. He worked on this big project to develop treatments for pandemics within 60 days of them first being created. So these are the sorts of issues that he's always thought about and has publicly spoken about. And now he's actually leading this effort to sort of coordinate all the vaccine makers who are involved in Operation Warp Speed. 
one of the uh, quotes that you had in here is that there's no science being done inside Operation Warp Speed. They're just coordinating everywhere else so that when something does get approved, we're ready to go. The chart, when you look at it at first, it looks out of balance. There's a huge amount of military folks, not that many folks working on the science side, but they made that good point that a lot of that science work is being done at the companies. And I also want to point out, though, that there are some really key vaccine experts who are also involved in this initiative who are employed by the government. So it's not like there's no one on the vaccine side, quite the contrary. Right. And two folks that we highlight in our stories are John Mascola and Larry Corey. And these are two of the most famous HIV researchers in the world. John actually heads the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institutes of Health. And Larry works at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And they're both actually coordinating the clinical trials portion of Operation Warp Speed. And folks that know Corey and Mascola really insist that they are the perfect people for this job. Nicholas Florco, Washington correspondent at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Most of the problem has been with political interference from the White House and higher ups at HHS, pressuring the CDC to issue guidance or change guidance or not include things in guidance so that those recommendations to the public were delayed and watered down. Joining us now is Lena Sun, health reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lena. Happy to be here. Wanted to talk about the CDC and what's been going on throughout this pandemic that we're going through. It's been around for a long time. For a while, it was the most admired public health agency. But there's been a series of missteps starting at the very beginning of the pandemic with a uh, botched rollout of testing kits, which kind of put us behind. The latest thing we've encountered was the guidance on aerosols that they had to retract, saying it was kind of a rough draft that they're working on. There's a lot of things that are going on in the CDC right now. And you know, maybe public confidence is not all there right now. So, Lena, tell us a little bit about what's going on with the CDC. Well, I think that your last point is definitely true. The trust in CDC is at an all-time low. And when you're dealing with a public health crisis, your main weapon is trust. And the reason why there's loss of institutional credibility at this time when the United States so desperately needs to know whom to trust is, As you mentioned, there's been a series of things. Some are honest mistakes by CDC. The test failure in the beginning of the year really was perhaps the original sin, which prevented the United States from seeing early on how widespread the virus was. But then since then, I would say most of the problem has been with political interference from the White House and higher ups at HHS pressuring the CDC to issue guidance or change guidance or not include things in guidance so that those recommendations to the public were delayed and watered down. And then this most recent back and forth was actually an honest mistake. But because there had been this record of political interference with CDC's work, people didn't believe the CDC when the CDC said, no, really, this was an honest mistake. Let's talk about Robert Redfield and how he's leading this public health agency right now. When he was appointed to this job, he did not have any experience in running a big public health agency as large and as complex as the CDC. And in the time of a pandemic, in a time of a crisis, you need to be having briefings daily to the American public where you say, here's what we know today about the virus. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we think you ought to do. Here's what we think works best. But 
the CDC has been completely silent. There has been no public briefing for three months. And I take you back to just last year when we had all those vaping-related lung injury cases. There were briefings several times a week as soon as they learned something, how it was related to vaping, vitamin E acetate. And then I take you all the way back to Zika, Ebola, the 2009 pandemic, which was a flu pandemic with H1N1, was led by CDC, the responses. They had a briefing almost every day for six weeks. And we have heard nothing. And when the White House has a briefing, it's Trump. And you know what? He is not a scientist. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about the CDC's role in the rollout of a vaccine once it gets approved. So the CDC is going to have a major role in that. Obviously, the FDA is going to be approving the vaccine. But from there, the CDC is going to have a lot of influence on how it gets distributed. It's a process that involves multiple agencies. So there's been a lot of attention on how safe and the effective of the vaccine will be. That is the job of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And it has had its own separate trust issues with its commissioner. And then once the vaccine is approved safe, the CDC has a federal advisory panel that will then decide, well, who should get it first? Should it be healthcare workers, essential workers? Who among the healthcare workers? Should it be people who have direct or indirect patient care. Those recommendations are made by this federal advisory panel to the CDC that the CDC will, they have almost in every single case accepted their recommendations. Mm -hmm. And then the federal government will let the states know, here are the folks we think should get the first initial doses because it will be limited numbers of vaccine doses. The states will then decide in each of its states, of their own state's population, who among those like four buckets or five buckets should get it. And then once it comes time to distributing the vaccine, it will be up to the CDC to help lead this very big and complicated effort to get the doses actually out to people. So how does the CDC regain that credibility? One of the issues is Dr. Redfield, who has been appointed, and the criticism of Dr. Redfield is from inside the agency and outside the agency that he has not done enough to stand up for the hardworking professionals at CDC, the scientists who are doing the work, but they're not being allowed to talk about it or explain it. Or when something has changed, the guidance, why did the CDC change its mask guidance? There was nobody from CDC to explain what the science was or why they changed that. So there are some people who say, well, as a start, why don't you let the experts talk? That is perhaps not going to be as likely under this administration. So then they're thinking, like, come November 3rd, if there is a change and we have a different director, perhaps that would make a difference. But there are others who feel that the damage has been so deep that the only way to really do a reboot is to get rid of the current structure. The CDC director is not someone who is Senate confirmed, unlike the FDA commissioner or the NIH director. So that person is appointed by the health secretary. But one thought that is out there is that you replace the current leadership structure at CDC with a board of governors with staggered terms that last longer than a president. And that's one way to get rid of political interference. Lena Sun, health reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.